Music reporting from around the world. It's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to another edition of Eye on Travel for this third weekend of January 2024. Hope you're having a great weekend wherever you happen to be. Let me tell you where we happen to be. Get out those maps, boys and girls. 34 degrees, 4 minutes north, 118 degrees, 23 minutes west. We are in Beverly Hills, California, the place to be in January, trust me, at the Peninsula Hotel right here in Beverly Hills. And of course, you can always reach me. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We'll solve of it right here on the air. So much to talk about this week. And of course, we have to start with the continuing investigation of that door plug that blew out of the uh, Alaska Airlines 737 earlier this month en route from Portland, Oregon down to Ontario, California. Obviously, the plane never made it that far. They were able to turn around at 16,000 feet and make an emergency landing back in Portland. That's the lucky news. That's the good news. But now there's the disturbing news about the investigation and on so many different levels. First, A shout-out to the National Transportation Safety Board. They do amazing work under very adversarial conditions, and they do a great job in what? Determining what the probable cause was on every airline accident. In fact, the NTSB is treating this not as an incident, but an accident, which allows them to put all their resources to work to find that probable cause. Well, so far, they've been able to determine... There's nothing wrong with the design of the plane. However, it deals with the manufacturing, the installation, and the inspection work associated with the plane. And not just this plane, with a lot of planes. That's one of the reasons why the FAA moved quickly to issue an emergency airworthiness directive, effectively grounding 171 Boeing 737 MAX-9 jets, operated by two airlines in in America, Alaska Airlines and United Airlines. And that emergency AI, or I should say the emergency AD, uh, basically says that none of these planes can fly unless they're properly inspected and are determined to be airworthy. Those inspections are continuing. And as you may have heard previous to this report, uh, United Airlines and Alaska Airlines have already discovered either loose or missing bolts in critical areas on their other aircraft. Not all of them, but on enough to create a serious worry. Why? Because if we don't find there's a problem with the design, there's a problem with the installation, the workmanship, and the inspection. Where does that take us? Right back to the assembly line at Boeing where these planes were first made. Also where these planes were first certified as being safe. So the question that screams to be answered and we're going to answer it, and you're not going to like it, was who did the inspections? Well, for decades, manufacturers like Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, Lockheed, and many others were allowed by the FAA to use what they called FAA-designated inspectors to first certify that their planes were safe to begin with, and then to inspect all the workmanship being done on the assembly lines as these planes came down the line. What's the problem? Those FAA-designated inspectors were on the payroll of the manufacturers. That means when Douglas designed the DC-10, the inspectors worked for Douglas. When Boeing designed the 737, 
The inspectors worked for Boeing. Are you getting a problem here? Not too difficult to connect the dots, right? Conflict of interest with capital letters. Well, this came to light. We've known about it for years. I've written about it for the last 30 years, especially in light of the DC-10 crash back in 1979. So actually, I've been writing it for more than you know, 45 years. And nobody did anything about it. The FAA thought this was a fine system, that the, the safety culture was fine. Well, maybe not. And then when we had the two 737 MAX crashes, one in Indonesia, one in Ethiopia, that's when this came to light at the congressional level. Boeing's been allowed to certify their own planes as safe? Who gave them that idea? Well, perhaps it was Boeing. Perhaps it was also because the FAA didn't have the staff, the budget, or the resources to hire their own inspectors. But still, who's going to stop the assembly line if you're being paid by the very manufacturer to keep that line running, despite the fact you may be a designated inspector. And that's the issue we're talking about now. So what happened earlier this week? The FAA announced that it will audit Boeing 737 MAX 9 production line and suppliers. Remember, this door assembly was subcontracted out to Spirit, not the airline, another company named Spirit. And who was doing that inspection? Nobody knows. Then the FAA said that this audit will evaluate Boeing's compliance with its approved quality procedures and then determine, I'm doing this in quotes, and determine whether additional audits are needed. An audit? Stop right there. Who's going to be doing the audit? FAA inspectors or Boeing? Guys, Boeing can announce increased inspections for safety anytime they want. I just want to know, Who's doing the inspections? Now, the FAA administrator basically said this after the Senate Commerce Committee, actually writing in a letter about these recent incidents, wants to show if there are ways that manufacturers can avoid audit accountability from the FAA, which they've been able to do for a long time. So now the FAA administrator is saying, well, maybe we're going to entertain the idea of an independent third party to do the inspections. Well, duh. They should have been doing that for 45 years. But who's the independent party? Who's training these people? Who's hiring these people? And where's the money coming from for that budget? Congress needs to move swiftly. And I'll tell you why. Because if they're looking at just the production line of the Boeing 737 MAX-9, the same conflict of interest problem exists on all the production lines. That would be the production line of the 787 Dreamliner or the Boeing 777 and the latest generation of that aircraft. Who's doing those quote-unquote audits or inspections? And that's where we stand today. So the definite result is an economic impact of pretty sizable proportions. For the airlines, how about lost revenue? Planes that can't operate on the in the air don't make money on the ground. How about for Boeing? No deliveries. Right? Those production lines are stopped right now. And of course, last but not least, you. What is it going to do to your flight schedules? What is it going to do to your airfares? What is it going to do to the time you spend going from A to B and wanting to have a reasonable notion of safety? All these are coming into question. And all these questions need to be answered. So this is not a story that's going to go away quickly or be resolved quickly. 
Will the 737 MAX-9 get back in the air? Of course it will. The 737 is inherently a safe plane, but that's not the issue here. The issue here is oversight, the issue here is inspection, and the issue here is getting rid of conflict of interest. So stay tuned on that one, because it's a story we're going to continue to cover. And when we come back, on a much lighter note, we're going to talk with the big guy at Expedia to find out where we're going this year, how we're going, and how often we're going. Back with more from the Peninsula Hotel here in Beverly Hills as Ion Travel continues right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. And welcome back as Ion Travel continues. Peter Greenberg here with you. Of course, you can always reach out to me. You know the drill. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem, and we'll solve it right here on the air. Uh, we're starting a new year, which means new data, new behavior, new trends. Who better to talk about that than the president of Expedia Brands, our friend John Gieselman. John, welcome back to the show. Peter, great to see you again. Thanks for having me. So here's the drill. Uh, I'm sure you'll agree with this. We never really saw what, what happened in 2022 and 2023 as big as it was going to be. Uh, and, you know, people can call it revenge travel. I don't call it revenge travel, by the way. I call it refocused demand uh, that was already there. Uh, but it was sustained. And here we are going into 2024. Uh, if you listen to the airlines, they'll tell you we fully expect our planes to be full. Uh, the original data that we're looking at shows that airfares may go up. Uh, on international flights, another 10%. But maybe some good news, airfares coming down a little bit on domestic flights. What does your data tell you? Yeah, I I think that's all uh, exactly right. I mean, you know, obviously COVID was incredibly disruptive to the to the whole industry. And, and what we're seeing is capacity and, uh, you know, on, on flights have pretty much normalized back to, to 19 levels. But, but as you said, it's a bit of a mixed bag between domestic and, and international uh, ticket prices. You know, domestically, ticket prices are maybe down a tick from 2019. It depends upon where you're talking about. And international, you know, we do expect to be up. And, you know, if you talk about the big popular destinations domestically, like New York and L.A. and Vegas, you know, they'll probably tend to be a little bit higher. But that's just because demand uh, is higher. So it, so in general, I would think about it, it's kind of reverted back to the norm. And then it depends upon where you're going, whether ticket prices will be up or down. You track this all the time in terms of, of trends and, and search. What are the hot destinations this year? Uh, have they differed at all from last year? Because if you take a look at some of the other destinations that are reporting back to us, you know, you're seeing some of the usual suspects like Las Vegas and Cancun, but any new de de destinations popping up for you guys? Yeah, I mean, I think internationally, the the big destinations now are Cancun, Punta Cana, Mexico City. Those are really big. But from a macro standpoint, Asia has come back to life in in a big way. Um, some of the it is the largest amount of traffic now is between L.A. and Tokyo. Um, you know, that's up dramatically. And it's because, you know, those markets have opened up 
Um, but, you know, another big corridor is Perth to Bali, Singapore to Jakarta. Uh, you want me to stop? No, keep going. Oh, sorry. Um, uh, you know, th there, there's these these big quarters in Asia that ha that have opened up. Uh, flights to Beijing as well are, are up dramatically. Um, so, yeah, so that's what's trending now. Although, you know, you mentioned Asia. We haven't seen the Chinese come back yet. So when we, when we deal with all the numbers of how many people are traveling, that's not counting the Chinese. What's going to happen when they come back? Well, obviously, it's going to go up even more. Uh, you know, we, we, we tend to book more tickets uh, out of China into international destinations than, than anybody else. So we are seeing it come back. But to your point, they're not back yet to 19 levels. Now, of course, we go back to the COVID days where everybody was going crazy trying to get refunds, trying to get their flights rebooked. What have you done within internally at, Ex at Expedia with all your brands to figure out how to anticipate any problems with any kind of meltdowns? Yeah, well, the good news for travelers is uh, even, even in 22, 4% of flights got canceled. Uh, that's now down across the industry to less than 2%. It's coming in, you know, around 1.7. So that's that's great news. Um, you know, for for what we've done for for travelers, um, probably the best thing to do is our is our flight tra tracker product. Um, you know, you can look at a at a flight uh, and turn on flight tracker, and then that'll keep you updated throughout the week, two weeks, three weeks, however you choose to keep it on, and it'll keep you updated updated as to how, uh, you know, the flight's costs fluctuate, and then you can decide when the right time to book. And of course, you know, the big thing that most people don't understand with Expedia is you get your airline miles when you book through us, plus you get one key cash from us that you can use for another trip. So if you don't book your flights through us, you're literally throwing away money. You know, you can book direct and you can still get your airline miles, but why you wouldn't do that through us so that you can get airline miles plus one key cash that you can use for a future trip, it's kind of crazy. And, and you know, most people don't understand that. So it's an important fact to, to know. Well, you know, I'm one of the old school guys. I still use Orbitz all the time and and uh, I get something called Orbucks. Now, I, didn't, I never knew what that meant until I went to book a hotel room and, and I got the room for free because I'd, I'd accumulated so much money I'd spent on airline tickets, I could apply that to the hotel fee. Yeah. I, you know, one key cash, I think, is the next evolution of that because, you know, you can take the, the one key cash that you earn from a flight that we're talking about right now, and then you can use it for a Verbo, you know, if you want. You can use it for a hotel on hotels. You can use it for a hotel on Expedia if you want. Think of it, it's just like a very flexible currency um, that, you know, we want people to use. So we're making it easy and you can decide how you want to use it. You can book a Verbo and you'll learn one key cash and you can use it for a flight on Expedia if you want to do that. It's it's all up to you. You know, that, that leads me to my next question about changes in, in purchasing patterns and what people are using to buy stuff with. Uh, we're seeing more and more people cutting their uh, mileage, airline mileage affinity cards in half and going for cash back cards. Uh, you know the the chase the one the capital ones uh, where you're getting uh, cash back or options as opposed to accruing miles you can't redeem. Yeah, well, I mean, cash is always king. Uh, you know, I mean, I myself I use a cash back card and then 
you know, of course I book through our own businesses and then I get one key cash on top of that, that I can I'm shocked. I'm shocked to hear that you're booking through your own system. (laughs) Yes. You know, you can, you can double dip that way. Actually, that's like a triple dip. You get cash back on your credit card, you get your miles, plus you get one key cash from us. So, you know, that's a, that's a smart way to go. But in terms of, you know, interesting trends that, you know, your listeners might uh, find interesting, you know, what we're seeing a lot is, um, a trend we call tour tourism, which is which is people traveling for international concerts. So people following Coldplay or Taylor Swift or Madonna, Metallica, who you know, Foo Fighters, whoever it is, and maybe not following them around the globe as they tour, but traveling, you know, for those concerts. That's a that's a big trend. And then another interesting trend is um, uh, what we call sort of duping. You know, that that is. Um, rather than going to, you know, one particular destination, um, you know, like Seoul is super expensive, but you can go to Taipei and it's very similar and it's sort of the dupe for Seoul. Um, or you can go to Perth instead of Sydney. You know, that's another big, another big trend that's happening. You're right. And in fact, we're seeing that happening all over the place. Uh, even in the United States, you know, and even choices of airports, you know, Providence, Rhode Island instead of Boston, uh, Oakland instead of San Francisco, uh, you know, to a certain extent, Midway instead of Chicago. But the secret airport, of course, Chicago is Milwaukee. I mean, people figuring out a, a better way to go. Exactly. You know, yeah, we call that trend destination dupes. It's it, it's kind of happening all over. It's super interesting. You know, it's just travelers getting smarter and and more availability with all the capacity coming back in air. It sort of enables that. You know, John, you mentioned, we're talking to John Gieselman, the president of Expedia Brands. You mentioned, you know, following the rock stars. Well, there's also something, it's the Game of Thrones impact, you know, where, or, or, or a White Lotus, where people aren't jet setting, they're set jetting. They're, they they want to go to those locations now. That's, yeah, that's what we've called it, set jetting. I mean, it's another big trend. It's like, you know, you see these popular shows on, on HBO or pick your streaming service and people want to go there. Um, and, uh, that is another big trend. Now, of course, if you can combine that with a Taylor Swift concert, then, then you're, then you're triple dipping. If you, if you can afford, if you can afford the tickets, if you can, if you can, but you know, like I said, turn on our flight tracker and, you know, we'll help you find, uh, the best price. It's there's, there's no cost. You just, you just put in whatever search you're thinking about, whether you're going, you know, pick LA to Tokyo. It's super popular corridor right now. Just put in the search, turn on flight tracker, and we'll keep you updated, you know, as long as you have it on as the, the price fluctuates. It's super helpful because, you know, the ticket prices do change, you know, throughout the, the course of time. Of course, the one thing you're missing, John, I'm sorry, you don't have the Taylor Swift tracker. No, we don't have that. We do not have that. But I, I love that. That's a new feature idea. We'll go work on that. Well, listen, if you take a look at her impact on GDP and how she actually moves the needle on local economies, I mean, there's something to be said for that. It's pretty amazing. It is. It is amazing. It is. Okay. Taylor Swift tracker. You heard her here first. They're going to be doing that on Expedia. John, John, I'm going to quote you on. I just did. <laughs> John Gieselman, the president of Expedia Brands. As always, sir, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. It's great to see you again. You got it. I'll, I'll see you at the next Taylor Swift concert. I'll be the, I'll be the guy in the pink Barbie outfit trying to do a double dip. I, I will meet you there. All right, man. We'll be back with more as Ion Travel continues right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air.
Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. Peter Greenberg here, back with you as Ion Travel continues on our special show from Beverly Hills, California, coming to you from the Peninsula Hotel. And of course, you know the drill. Just email me, peter at petergreenberg.com, with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Let's go out to the phones out in Northbrook, Illinois. We've got Roberta on the phone. Hey, Roberta. Hi. How can I help you? So, okay. So, on January 13th this year, we were going to take a 21-day cruise for our 60th anniversary. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. We really made it. <laughs> On December 29th, my husband fell and broke his hip. Oh. I, because it was a holiday weekend, I tried to call the travel agent. I tried to call them. I tried to call everyone, and nobody, of course, was going to answer me. I really tried to cancel, and... He was operated on Saturday at 12.30. Tuesday after the holiday, I finally reached somebody at CrewCon, and he said he would check it over and over and do what he could do about now, it. Now, hold, hold on a second. Who's CrewCon? CrewCon is a travel agent. Okay. So you let me just see if I can back up. You booked this entire cruise with a travel agency, correct? Correct. And let me, I, I got to ask yeah. my second question. Did you buy insurance? I bought partial insurance. What does partial insurance cover? It covers, but instead of thirty, uh, of thirteen thousand, maybe twelve thousand. All right, so you co- you covered it. You bought insurance that gave you a re- a reduced benefit. Is that right? Right. Okay, so let me see if I can recap here. You booked a cruise through the travel agent. You bought insurance. You had an an issue that happened with your husband that was well documented because he was operated on in the hospital, and you wanted to cancel the trip because of that. Correct. Correct. Okay. Now, since you bought it through, did you buy the insurance through the travel agency as well? No. Why not? I bought it separately. Why not? Because by the time, I usually don't. Okay. After traveling for so many years, I just don't do that. Okay. So, okay. I got to ask another question. So, you bought the insurance through a third party, correct? Correct. All right. Did Did you contact the insurance company? I did. And they need information filled out from the for the doctor, um, which also the cruise company wanted information filled out. Of course, out. and and the cruise company told me, "quote The husband cannot take the trip, but you can take the trip. So find somebody else to go on the trip with you." Are you serious? I swear to God, that's what they said. I could not believe it. And when I told friends, they said, "Really." That makes. Um, uh, no, so wait, said, are you telling me what was the name of the what was the name of the cruise uh, company? Uh, it was Holland America. Now let me tell you something right now, Roberta. Listen carefully. If I book a trip on Holland America, and I'm going to take you, and at the last minute you can't go, and I want to take my friend Susie, Holland America is not going to let me do that. They won't let you change names. So for Holland America to suggest that is bogus. Um, so, so here's what I want you to do. This is important. You know my email address, peter at petergreenberg.com. I want you to mm-hmm. send me, number one, the name of your insurance company. Number two, the policy number. Number three, your reservation number on Holland America. And, of course, the name of your totally inefficient travel agent, uh, uh, the guy from CrewCon, all right? Correct. But I want phone numbers. I want dates. I want reservation numbers 
so I can get into this because something tells me you didn't get your money back yet. Is that correct? Correct. Because I haven't gotten the information from the doctor yet because he left for a week. And when I talked to the nurse, she said she's sending it to me. All right. But originally, my daughter canceled the air and my son canceled the hotel before with no problem. And the reason for that, the reason for that is because United Airlines doesn't, um, in fact, they started it. Which airline? Was this United? United. Okay. Correct. United no longer charges you a ticket cancellation fee. They actually put it into a credit account for you to use over the next year. Is that what they did? No. They put it on my charge card. They gave me all ah, the money back. What class of service? No wait problem. a minute. Wait a minute. What class of service were you flying? First class. That's why you got a full refund. That's the one exception. Uh, but if, if you bought any other class of service or a discounted ticket, they would have given you a credit in that amount in your account, but you would not have gotten your cash back. So I'm not surprised that you got your full refund from United. I'm happy to hear about the hotel. But this cruise fiasco sounds like it's a much more complicated issue here. So, Roberta, remember what I told you. Send me that information. Keep copies for yourself. And then we'll get into it. The cruise line said if I would have booked the air through the cruise line, I would not have gotten a refund. Well. That's what they told uh me. So far... So nobody line, should book through the airline, I mean, through the cruise company. Look, right now, whatever the cruise line told you based on what you've told me is bogus. So we're going to get into this. Um, Be sure you listen to me now. Send me your all your information, all the details, peter at petergreenberg.com, and we will get into this. Okay, Roberta? Okay, thank you very much. You I'll are have very... My daughter, my daughter do it. She's the bright one. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, listen, we all make stupid mistakes, but we're going to figure this one out, okay? Okay, thank you very much. You're very welcome, Roberta. I could not believe, can you believe that they told me to take somebody else? I should have called you and taken you with me. I would have gone. (laughs) Roberta. Well, we'll discuss that later. Roberta, thanks so much. Okay, and I'll I'll send you all the info. Thank you. You got it. And when we come back, we'll be joined in Beverly Hills by my old pal, a name I think you know, Wolfgang Puck, right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. Eye on Travel back with you, Peter Greenberg, here as we continue the show from Beverly Hills, California and the Peninsula Hotel. Of course, you can always reach me. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number. Question or problem, we'll solve it right here on the air. Joining me now is an old friend. We go back, oh my goodness, probably 40 years at least. A legend in the business, an iconic restaurateur, and uh, you know his name because I'm going to give you his name, Wolfgang Puck. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you again since I don't see you that often. But we, well, we see each, I'll tell you where we see each other. We see each other in Hong Kong when the Chinese are taking over. 
All right, yeah, they're 97, so, okay, I was just out of uh, high school then. Yeah, yeah, speak yeah. for yourself, right. And, and then I bump into you in New York, and, and, but if we're in Beverly Hills, i got to talk to you because, I mean, I remember uh, I came out here in 1971 for Newsweek, and, of course, next thing I know, there is your restaurant up on Sunset. Spago but, in 1982. 1982, Spago. And before that, of course, Ma Maison. yeah. Well, you're going back in the history. So uh, when I started at Mamezon, it was like in 1975. And then in 82, I opened Spago up on Sunset. And the rest is history. And, you know, if you remember that restaurant, I know you do, but if you remember that restaurant, it was up on a hill, and the parking was treacherous. You had to go up that steep hill to get in there. But you know what? People would kill for the pizza. Yeah, well, not only the pizza. We had a lot of other things, but I think the duck sausage pizza... Our smoked salmon pizza and our Santa Barbara shrimp pizza became famous. And then I remember I went to a pizza convention once to see what they have. And then I told them we sell about 100 pizzas a night and we do $6 million in, uh, in uh, revenue. And they looked at me, how do you do that? I said, well, we sell the smoked salmon pizza. It's not a $10 pizza, it's a $35 pizza at the old time. And today? And today is like 70. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know what? Everything got more expensive. I remember I bought a car at that time for $110,000. You know, these days, if you get something for under 30000 you're lucky. You're right. But how has the business changed? Because when people come to Beverly Hills, it's more expensive. Uh, they're expecting that. But all the raw ingredients have changed in terms of the, the cost yeah. and the supply chain. Yep. All the raw ingredients, everything has gone up transportation, truck drivers, everybody needs more money, and rightfully so, because in a city like Los Angeles, where it's very expensive to live, and the minimum wage is 16 or $17, nobody can live on that. So I really believe that we should have a fair minimum wage and so that everybody can make a living. And I think at the end of the day, you cannot live two hours away from your job, then you spend four hours a day driving and that's expensive too so being able to live close where you work is an important part but you know we if people charge us more money we have to charge more money i know hotel rooms have gotten through the roof i just came back from maui you know we have a spago at the four season there and a room there is three thousand dollars a night now and it doesn't include the pizza. It doesn't include the pizza, no. We rent the restaurant, so they doubled the price over the last few years for the room. We added... And, the, and they're getting it, and they're getting it. Yeah, the, rest, the hotel was 70% occupied at that room rate, so they are actually making more money with 70% occupancy than before with 98% occupancy because it's twice as expensive and they have less employees working. If we could do that in our restaurants, it would make it easy because if I double the prices in the restaurant, I think we will drop not 20%, but we'll drop 60% probably of our guests won't be happy. So I think life has gotten more expensive now, and I think we really have to rethink how we're going to adjust to inflation, how we're going to adjust to minimum wage so that people make a fair living too. But of course, in terms of your menu, certain things have never gone off that menu. 
You know, a lot of the prices are still reasonable. We have to engineer the menu to put maybe a few more pasta dishes on or risotto dishes or make maybe the prime ingredients, if it's veal, lamb or things like that, a little smaller or buy parts which are not as expensive and cook them really well, like a lamb shank is not that expensive, so if you serve it with a good risotto, it's an amazing dish, especially in the wintertime. And in Canada, it would be perfect. But we're not in Canada. We are not in Canada, yeah. We're in Beverly Hill. Yeah. And we're speaking to Wolfgang Puck, the legendary restaurateur and chef and everything else. Uh, you and I also go back to the days when we were both on Good Morning America, yeah. having a lot of fun together on ABC. Are you still doing TV? I'm, uh, I'm actually going tomorrow to uh, New York. I'm going to do the Today Show on Friday morning. And then in the afternoon, I'm going to do a thing with Bobby Flay, who is an old friend. You always say, if you come to New York, you have to come on my show too. So I'm going to do something with Bobby Flay, not to beat him, because that would be too easy, but to be a judge on the show. We'll be right back with more of Peter Greenberg, that's me, and Wolfgang Puck from the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills, right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Eye on Travel, we'll be right back. You've been listening to Eye on Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. And we're back. Peter Greenberg here as Ion Travel continues from Beverly Hills and the Peninsula Hotel. We've been speaking to Wolfgang Puck, my old buddy who uh, is promising not to beat up on Bobby Flay when he, when he goes to New York. But what's changed at your restaurant in Beverly Hills other than the cost of raw ingredients? What do you still keep on the menu that are the classics? Well, we have actually, we are working on a menu now where we're going to have innovation and tradition. So one part of the menu is going to be all our traditions dishes like the tuna cones like the smoked by the way the tuna cones i if, if they ever invite me to the emergency room it'll be because i overdosed okay. on the tuna cones they're unbelievable and that was yours from day one yeah so from day one here on uh cannon drive at spago so i think there are dishes like that the agnolotti the hong kong style fish the wiener schnitzel the kaiserschmann so these are all tradition and what is really tradition too they became classics and classics are always good you know if something is a classic like an old car you know a ferrari from the 60s is a classic uh, it's way more expensive than a new one maybe i should think about that too and then on the other side of the menu we're gonna have innovation because because we have to move forward too. So we have to have a good mixture of innovation and classics. So we're gonna have a tasting menu, maybe of seven or eight courses, always of new things. So that way I can challenge the chefs, I can challenge the waiters, and they have something new, exciting to tell. And for me, that's really important. Even now, last fall, we spent two and a half million dollars to remodel Spago the inside, to freshen it up, build a new roof, build new fireplaces, a new floor, and so forth. So I think I want people when they come to Spago to get a great experience. Now you mentioned, uh, well, you mentioned some of the signature dishes, but you're from Austria, so you better have the Wiener Schnitzel the right way. Yeah, absolutely. I actually had last night, an Austrian family was, and I saw her eating the Wiener Schnitzel. I come back five minutes later, the plate was clean. And I said, you know what? You come from Vienna. Why you come here to eat the Wiener Schnitzel? You have enough restaurants over there. She said, 
you know, I wanted to try it. And I, she told me, you know, this is better than anything I had in Vienna. So I was very happy because they look like they travel a lot. And I think to say, you know, normally they are so proud of their places in Vienna. And I know a lot of good restaurants. And I actually had a food critic once come too from Vienna. And he had the Wiener Schnitzel. And I went out. I didn't know he was a critic at that time. I said, you're from Austria, you're going to eat Wiener Schnitzel here? He said, yeah, yeah, I have to try it, I have to try it. So he tried it and went back to Vienna, told my friend in Vienna who owns the most famous restaurant called Steirach, and says, you know, Heinz, you have the second best Wiener Schnitzel. And Heinz said, what the, what the heck? And uh, he said, so who has the best one? He said, the best one, Wolfgang in Los Angeles at Spargo. How do you do it differently? You know what, it's the quality of the ingredients which is the most important thing. You know, in Austria, they don't use the villain what we use. So this is more tender. You have to get the right thickness so it stays juicy. And I think it's simple, but sometimes the simplest things are the hardest ones to do them right. Because if you overcook them a little bit too much, if you do not the right breading, if you're busy, you bread the Wiener Schnitzel in advance too much, it soaks up the moisture and then you don't get a good Wiener Schnitzel. So it has to be done to order the right way. So many chefs, and this is not a new thing, but so many chefs think that the key to a successful dish is to overload it, to put so many things in there and then tell you the story about five different sauces, you sort of lose it, don't you? Absolutely. I think for me, simplicity is much more difficult. Now, we enhance dishes or ingredients. If you buy the best fish, you don't have to add 10 different sauces to it or what people do now, they pile up salad and vegetables, everything on top of each other. You don't actually see the, the meat or the fish anymore. I remember I was not too long ago in Santa Barbara and they ordered a steak, I said, uh, which is rare. And when the plate comes, I told the waiter, I didn't order vegetables, I ordered a steak. He said, yeah, the steak is there. Look for it. <laughs> so I had to find it. So it's, it's about keeping it simple. Yeah, it's about keeping it simple. Like we're actually opening a new restaurant in uh, Las Vegas at the Mandela Bay called Karama. Dear mom, it's called Karama. Why? Because my mother really started me into cooking. And now I'm getting back. So I said, you know, the newest restaurant is that. And Italian food too is simple. If it's done right, you know, you don't have to add a lot of things. You just buy the best ingredients and try not to mess them up. We're here in Beverly Hills. What's special to you about Beverly Hills? I think Beverly Hills is one of the great cities because you have really a great lifestyle. It's a small city. I think I live very close to work and I think you have everything somebody will ever need here right in a square mile. So to me, it has the best restaurants, the best hotels. I mean, great shops, great food. What more you need? And some chef from Austria. And some chef from Austria who got lost here, yeah. But not a bad clientele. I think the clientele here, obviously, Los Angeles is the movie capital. Most of the movie people, if it's directors, producers, uh, studio heads, they live in that neighborhood. They live in Beverly Hills or surrounding Beverly Hills, Holmby Hills, Bel Air. So to me, it's really a special place. That's why when people come here, they always say, where are the movie stars? Where are the movie stars? And you know where they are? They're eating with Wolfgang at Spago. Yeah, I actually had a great time two nights ago, Sunday night, uh, even though I had everybody in the kitchen. I'm very good friends with Lenny Kravitz, you know, because I am old and I love rock and roll. And then the next thing is Kevin Costner came and Billy Eilish came and uh, Coleman Domingo came. So, and uh, Judy Dench came with Taylor Hackford. So we had them all in the kitchen. We were eating, having the wine on the kitchen counter and the waiters barely could get through. And everybody emailed me after and said, Wolfgang, this was the most fun I ever had at the party. Well, thanks for having our party. 
Thank you. Wolfgang Puck, that music means we're out of time for this hour. Stick around, everybody. A whole lot more coming from Beverly Hills and the Peninsula Hotel as Ion Travel continues right after this. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg here back with you as Ion Travel continues for this third weekend of January 2024. If you're just joining us, let me tell you where we're broadcasting from. Get out your maps, boys and girls. 34 degrees, 4 minutes north, 118 degrees, 23 minutes west. We are in Beverly Hills, California, and in particular from the peninsula of Beverly Hills. And of course, you know the drill. You can always reach me. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. When you say you're coming from Beverly Hills, What does that connote for you? Is it just Rodeo Drive? Is it uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Is it Kardashians on Parade? Which one is it? Here's one for you. How about none of the above if you want to look beyond just the surface? And joining me now is somebody who sees everything in Beverly Hills because he's the managing director of the Peninsula Hotel here in Beverly Hills. Afranis and Mount, welcome, sir. Thank you, Peter. It's great to be with you. You know, since the last time we, we had you on the show, I mean... You know, we've gone into this post-pandemic world in which luxury travel, of which the Peninsula Hotel is a big part of it, has maintained rates, has maintained airfares, has maintained a pursuit of a lifestyle, bucket list madness, still going on. Absolutely. I think that the experiential travel is something that's uh, only growing and uh, more and more people are looking for comfort, luxury and a place they can call home. And are they doing that in Beverly Hills? Absolutely, because Beverly Hills is a village and there's so many different experiences you can have and staying at the peninsula Beverly Hills and then just going about your day, having several experiences throughout. Well, you become the enabler. Absolutely, and we love to be that. But I mean, have you seen a change in guest demands or expectations in terms of the kind of experiences they want? I think more and more guests have experienced luxury and understand what it means. And you have to be genuine, you have to be thoughtful, and you have to create something unique and special that differentiates you from from everyone else. But as part of that definition of luxury, you could say luxury is maybe not a material good anymore, Uh, it's time. Luxury is time. It's exactly right. And that's why one of the reasons where you check into this hotel whenever you want and you check out whenever you want because it's your time that we care about. But you do have to pay the bill. Yes, you do. (laughs) (laughs) But what I'm talking about is a change in approach to purchasing patterns in terms of the lifestyles of the rich and famous, if you excuse that expression. Uh, You know, people say... I don't necessarily want to buy a luxury good or a material item. I don't want to buy um, a new car, a new house, but I want to buy experience. Exactly. And that, that is what luxury is all about, is the experiential. And it's all about what you experience and not the material. It's exactly what's trending right now. Well, of course, you know, the perception or I should say the stereotype of Beverly Hills, it's a place where they have an unlimited budget and then they exceed it. 
Uh, and not not always. Uh, they they do have an unlimited budget, but they're still discerning about how they spend it, and they want to make sure they have value for what they spend. So I think that more and more you have to create that experience that doesn't take people for granted, but creates value and something special in their experience. What have you changed in the hotel to cater those expectations? I think flexibility and thoughtfulness, uh, caring about the guest, making sure that every guest walks into the room and their pillow is monogrammed with their initials. Come on. Every single guest of the hotel. So what you're telling me is you're losing a lot of pillowcases. We are, and we're happy to do so, because if you take your pillowcase home and you put it on your bed, every night when you go to sleep, you're thinking about us. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a nice touch. It is, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's sending a very strong message to the guest. We thought about you, we care about you, and you're just not ahead in bed. You know, I'll tell you a luxury lifestyle story about a hotel that goes back at least 40 years. And I'm amazed more hotels don't do it. I was checking into the Savoy Hotel in London back in the early 80s. And uh, I was walking to my room with a bellman. And I didn't understand what was happening. But unbeknownst to me, he was literally sizing me up. And now I get to the room. He leaves. I tip him, put the bag on the, on the baggage holder, and about five minutes later, there's a knock on the door, and it's housekeeping with my bathrobe. No, we're not talking monogram bathrobe, but the bathrobe was two sizes larger than I ever would have asked for. Why was that genius from the hotel? Because if you have a weight issue, or you think you do, and you put on a bathrobe that another family of five can fit in there with you, and you feel so thin and debonair, <laughs> you love the hotel. Absolutely. How many bathrobes did I buy? I bought three, and I had them monogram it, right? And I'm telling you, they had the thickest Irish terry, terry linen and, and amazing stuff. They were doing a, 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 an unbelievable business in personalized bathrobes because one size didn't fit all. Exactly. And the most important thing is you have never forgotten that. It's 40 years ago and you still remember it. So the, that impression that it left on you is forever. Yeah, but there's a problem. Here's the problem. I lost weight. I put that bathroom on now. I hope my audience is old enough to remember Emmett Kelly. <laughs> I mean, I look like a bad circus clown. <laughs> but that's okay. I'm sure they have a, the right size for you when you go back. Absolutely. Yeah. But what other, other than the pillowcases, though... And guest rec recognition and name recognition, what's changing? So I think, again, we talk about value. And I think one of the programs we have is where you, you check into a suite and we give you a BMW. It's yours for the entire stay, gas, parking included. So you can go anywhere you want with it, anywhere in Los Angeles, Beverly Hills and Santa Monica, anywhere. And it's yours for the entire stay. And again, you're, you're in a suite but we're creating value for you. So it's not just here's $3,000, but you're getting something for it. And again- You're getting a tangible asset. Exactly right. Wow. Has anybody taken the car and not come back? <laughs> it hasn't happened, but what has happened, because people would normally not, they would not be the type of guest that would go on a test run in a local dealership. They've been, they got into the car and they said, well, I really like this car. 
let me buy a couple for my home. So the manufacturer, BMW in this case, has made a lot of sales as a result of people going into cars they normally may have not had a chance to go into. See, now when I check into a hotel room, I'm actually test driving the room, not test driving the car, see if I like the bedspread, to see if I like the sheet count, or the yeah. thread count, to see if I like what they've done in the bathroom, right? To see if I can replicate that in my own home, you just taking it to the car department. Exactly, and that's exactly what we do. Wow, so how many cars have you sold? Well, I haven't sold personally, but certainly I've referred, um, I would say, you know, several dozen cars wow. uh, over, over the time. So that's why we have a, a, a partnership with BMW where they give us the car and we, in turn, provide the experience for our guests. I love it. It's all about the experience. All about the experience. Offer Nissenbaum, the managing director here at the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills. Stick around, everybody, because when we come back, we're going to talk about the performing arts here in Beverly Hills at the Wallace Annenberg Center for the Performing Arts, a brand new facility that's doing great work. Back with more Eye on Travel, Beverly Hills, or maybe I'll just steal the car right after this. <laughs> Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg here back with you as Ion Travel continues from the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills, California. You know the drill. You can always reach out to me. Just send me your name, phone number, question, or problem to peter at petergreenberg.com, and we'll answer it right here on the air. Uh, I've been coming to California since my early days at Newsweek Magazine back in 1971, and, you know, there was always the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in downtown Los Angeles, and then every once in a while there'd be a concert out at Dodger Stadium, and and... Maybe every once in a while at the old Wiltern Theater on Wilshire and Western. My next guest knows a little bit about that because his background is the Kennedy Center. His background is Lincoln Center. But now he is doing something very special here at the Wallace Annenberg Center for the Performing Arts. He's the Executive Director and CEO, Robert Van Leer. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Peter. Good to be here. I mean, nice pedigree, sir. Thank you. I mean, Kennedy Center... And Lincoln Center. I've been very fortunate. I've enjoyed Why did you things. move west of the Hudson? Well, you know, is that I, I, I love adventure. I love new things. That's why I moved from New York to London and then from London to D.C. And now from D.C. via the Netherlands here to Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. We can't forget the Netherlands. <laughs> my parents were Dutch, so that's my pedigree. I got it. Now we got the whole pedigree here. Yeah. But is this the first really great performing arts center in Beverly Hills? Yes, certainly in Beverly Hills it is. You know, it's built out of the original post office from 1934, which became redundant for the Postal Service. So they tried to reimagine and reimagine. And then in 2013, it opened as a multi-venue, multi-art form, performing arts center. Now, when we talk about a former post office, were there architectural constraints? There were, of course. It's a historic listed building. It's yeah. a wonderful Italianate building. It's a beautiful space. So they had to work around that. I wasn't a part of that. I've been with the organization just coming up to 10 months. So I'm a newbie to the team. But, you know, it's working with that old. And then the architects imagined a new theater around the back of it, which had to be sunk down two levels so that the roof line of the new theater didn't exceed the roof line of the old post office. So it's a beautiful little campus right in between North Santa Monica, South Santa Monica, Crescent, and Cannon right in the Golden Triangle. 
And what, about a 500-seat auditorium? 500-seat auditorium and a 140-seat black box and an education wing. Education a black court. box, which is? 140 seats called the Lovelace. So, you know, we've got different spaces for education, for performance, all kinds of things. And you're attracting some very interesting artists. We always are. We're trying to look for, you know, people who are established and known to the public, but also people who are crossing artistic boundaries, building new work. You know, we have about between 150 and 200 curtains a year, so it's a lot of programs. Listen, there was a time in Beverly Hills if you crossed artistic boundaries, that was a felony. <laughs> a new world, a new age, Peter. So tell me who you got. Well, we've got, you know, right now we've got Camille Brown, the amazing choreographer-dancer who has been recently at the Met on Broadway, doing films, winning awards, and she's just coming in, opening tomorrow night with her company. Um, we've got, uh, again, Kyle Abraham, who's the uh, lead at the Kaufman School of Dance, but also a leading choreographer in the world today. He's coming next month. Um, but we've got Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. We've got a whole variety of performance opportunities across all art forms, music, theater, and dance. And let's talk about the name Annenberg to put that in perspective. I remember when I was a correspondent for Newsweek, every once in a while they'd ask you to write a piece for TV Guide, and TV Guide was owned at that time by Walter Annenberg, later the ambassador of the United States to London and a very close friend of Ronald Reagan. But that his daughter, Wallace Annenberg, the heiress, if you will, Yes, that's where she was able to, uh, to put this together. Well, Wallace has had such an imprint on so many facets of life in America today, not only here in Los Angeles, but across the country. The Annenberg name appears on so many cultural, educational, developmental institutions, but we're very, very lucky that it wouldn't have happened without the support of Wallace Annenberg. She lives just up the road. You know, this is local for her, and we were very, very grateful that she was willing to put her name on it and be that, that critical angel that made the whole thing possible. You know, when you say in Los Angeles that they live just up the road, nobody walks it's like the uh, the old LA story movie with Steve Martin but Beverly Hills you can walk yes and I do because I live just you know up the road in West Hollywood so I just have to walk down the road every day of, through Beverly Gardens if you know the local landscape we do uh, into the Wallace um, it's and then having a great time so it can we want to be both local important for the whole L.A. County, but also play a role uh, in the national landscape. So we're trying to serve many masters. And are you getting great local support? We are getting great local support. I mean, L.A. is a great town. As you know, it's been changing and diversifying. Stop right there. L.A. is not a town. It is 86 separate incorporated cities Correct. in desperate search of a community. Yes. But, you know, it's, I lived in London for 20 years, and the thing now after 10 months that I'm finding, to me it feels a lot like London, and I'll explain why. Just because it's all of these different communities, different villages, different neighborhoods, different flavors. As you move across London, it's just like as you move across L.A. You find all these different pockets and opportunities, and it is just so rich and so exciting. I mean, Beverly Hills, I know, calls itself a city, but it's really a village. It is a village, 31,000 people, you know, a tiny square foot, and it is very village-like as you move around here. We're in the epicenter of Beverly Hills here by the Golden Triangle, but you see the same people. We eat in the same places. We go to the same diners, you know. You know, we, I meet people in pavilions all the time who are on my board or, or supporters of the Wallace. It is very much a village. Wait a second. There's a diner in Beverly Hills? There is a diner, Nate and Al's. I had breakfast oh, okay. this morning. That's a deli. Deli. Sorry. Deli, diner. Come on. Okay, okay. Splitting hairs, but I, uh, yeah, I take the point. No, Nate Nels is still around. We like that. Uh, very much. They almost closed. They almost closed. Many yeah. things closed and many things almost closed during the pandemic. I mean, but in the old days, you'd walk into Nate Nels and there's Larry King every day 
right? Or Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner, they, all, they would all come in. Right. Yeah. But you've got that diversity. You know, people have a perception of what Beverly Hills is all about, but it's about many things from many different walks of life. How would you describe the actual center itself? Because it's called the Center for the Performing Arts. Correct. But can you define what that means as it relates to Beverly Hills? Um, as it relates to Beverly Hills, you know, it's about being a cultural anchor for the community. It's a place where you can invade, in, engage with the performing arts, but really it's about culture. Increasingly, you know, I was working at the Kennedy Center for seven years prior to coming here, and we spoke a lot more about culture, and I think that's the same thing here. What is the cultural offering here in Beverly Hills for the community? And that's about learning, that's about participating, that's about sitting in a theater and enjoying a performance, but it's also about getting in and participating and being a part of that community. And that's where a performing arts center is a cultural anchor. And when you're trying to, to break new ground, what would you call your more surprising performances? I think the more surprising things is when you have newer artists that the public may not know who are really experimenting on the edge of their artistic performance. You know, we have some of that, we, but we try to have programs for people who the tried and true. You know, we just finished a big run of Love, Love Actually Live as our holiday show. You know, we, we have a variety of performances for a variety of audiences. Now, you just finished a holiday show. Don't tell me you did the Nutcracker. We did not. We did uh, a, a show which is called Love Actually Live. It works from the original film, Love Actually, but it intersperses By the way, it with, with live which I watch every single year. I'm such a glutton for punishment. As do millions of people around the globe. It's that movie, and it's A Wonderful Life, and I'm done. Yes. Everybody has their one or two favorites. There are many's, but, you know, many, but uh, it's an important part of the holidays. So when you do that show as a, as a musical, I suppose, Yes. right? Uh, it's also a comedy. It's also a comedy. There's great comedy in that. You know, Richard, he always works comedy into the story, so it's an important part of it. And what's been your most challenging performance? I think, the, I think we have to talk about what do you mean by challenging. We do have work, you know, uh, that, that is a part of our program, which kind of tests the audience, makes them think more, makes them reflect more, makes them ask questions about themselves, because the arts is a mirror on our society. We Increasingly, we have to reflect what's going on, but also, uh, not only for you as an individual, but for us as a co community and collective. Well, in our current disruptive world, you've got a lot of uh, food for thought. We do. Always. And, the, you know, I always talk about it. People say, well, there's the new environment and the artists have so much to say. Artists always had a lot to say. They always were making statements. They didn't always put it at the forefront, but there were always ideas and movements behind the artistic work, and that hasn't changed at all. I mean, this reminds you of the, of the early work by Gordon Davidson mm -hmm. down at the Mark Taper Forum here in Los Angeles. Yes, Center Theater Group. Exactly. I mean, if there was a new artist or a new playwright, he was on top of it, and yes. he, he broke so many people. Yes, and he, you know, he was a, a great inspiration because he worked with diverse communities. He worked with diverse, vo diverse voices. He was a front runner in many ways, and I think many of us here at CTG, at the Wallace, at many of the inst great institutions, are working to continue that kind of legacy. And anything coming up this summer I need to know about? Well, this, this summer we have a lot of educational programs that we're looking at. We really want to bring young people in because education is an important part of what we do. It's called Grow at the Wallace, and this is also another Annenberg family a tradition because Grow is a national, a national program around education supported also by the Annenberg family. I love it. Website? Website, thewallace.org. That's easy. Easy. W-A-L-L-I-S. W-A-L-L-I-S dot org. Thewallace.org. Robert Van Leer, the executive director and the CEO of the Wallace Annenberg Center for the Performing Arts right here in Beverly Hills. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for joining us. And when we come back, 
As soon as I keep my voice, we're going to do your emails and your calls, and there's a lot of stuff to discuss. Stick around as we return. Eye on travel from the Peninsula Hotel right here in Beverly Hills right after this. Thanks so much. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com, and we'll solve it on the air. more information on what you've heard have a travel question or comment just log on to petergreenberg.com now here's peter and welcome back to ion travel from beverly hills california and the peninsula hotel peter greenberg here with you of course you can always reach me just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name phone number question or problem we will solve it right here on the air let's go right out to the phones out in denver i've got tiffany on the phone hey tiffany hi how can I help you? Well, I had a question based on some information you were giving out on your global travel update recently regarding the 737 MAX issues with Boeing. Sure. And it made me it made me think that if I can, what I'll probably try and do is maybe book Airbus instead of Boeing. Um, but I don't know. Is there an easy way to know aside from actually booking the flight and getting the details where it tells you the type of airplane you're on, can you know in advance what aircraft inventory these airlines have? Sure. Um, if, based on the airline you want to fly, keep in mind that the airplanes that have been grounded by the FAA in this particular case belong to Alaska Airlines and United Airlines. Those are the only two U.S. operators of the Boeing 737 MAX-9. Now, Anybody listening to the show, including you, Tiffany, if you're flying tomorrow or any other day and you want to know what plane you're supposed to be flying on based on the schedule, any of the online travel agency sites can tell you that. Uh, you can also find out just by calling the airline and asking them what kind of equipment you're flying. However, I give you one caution. Airlines can always substitute equipment based on, you know, fleet capacity and size. Uh, it's happened to me all the time. It's happening a lot now because they have to substitute planes for the 737 MAX 9s they had to ground. But if you want to know on a regular basis what kind of plane is normally going to be flying on the route that you're taking, it's very easy information to get. Okay, and that actually sort of addresses my next question um, was if I should happen to get flight canceled or rescheduled, which happens to me quite often as well, if they put me on another flight, even if I've tried to book an Airbus, um, I may get put on a Boeing 737 anyway, is what you're saying, based on what they need and what they have in inventory. Well, let me put it, if you're just talking about a 737 or a 737 MAX 9, which one are you talking about? Uh, I'm, right now, I'm sort of hesitant of any of them, but I guess more the MAX. Okay. Don't be hesitant of any of them. The 737 planes are inherently safe. They're the widest used planes in the world. They go back over 60 years um, in terms of their original model numbers. Now, there are no 60-year-old 737s flying that would fly you right now, so don't worry about that. But it's got a great history. Okay. The problem is the latest incarnations of them with manufacturing, design, and training issues that we all saw with the MAX crashes in Indonesia and in Ethiopia, and, of course, the most recent example over the skies of Oregon. So... What airlines are doing, and the only two that are doing them, of course, are Alaska and United, is if 
you were booked on a 737 Max and they and they changed it, well, that's okay. If you were booked on another plane, let's say, and all of a sudden they wanted to change it to a 737 Max, we went through this during the time when the planes were grounded after the crashes, uh, they will give you the opportunity to book on another flight with them on another type of equipment at no penalty. You mm. just, just got to okay. ask. You just got to ask. Okay. Good to know. I thought maybe I'd just be stuck with it. No, 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 no. You have lots of options. Um, and by the way, United Airlines also flies Airbus equipment. They fly the A319. They fly the A320. Um, and, uh, you know, Alaska Airlines also flies the Airbus A320 and the A321s. So they're not just all 737s. So you do have options, okay? Okay, perfect. I hope that was helpful. Yes, very helpful. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. You got it. Thanks, Tiffany. You're welcome. Bye-bye. And now let's go to the emails. I've got one here from Joyce who goes, I have an old suitcase, backpack, and a few carrying bags that I'd like to donate. Do you accept these sort of donations? I heard on the radio about children in foster care needing something better than a plastic bag to carry any possessions they may have. Please let me know. Well, I don't personally accept the donations because I don't have any place to warehouse them. But I will tell you this, Joyce, there are a number of great organizations that do. Uh, and of course, you can start with the Salvation Army. You can start with Goodwill. You can also start with the bag manufacturers themselves. Many of them have programs or relatable or related resources where they can direct you to the organizations that can accept them, maybe even repair them and return them to useful uh, condition for the people who really need them. So that's what I'd suggest that you do. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, you know, call American Tourist or call Samsonite, call Toomey, uh, call Hartman, call Delcy, uh, call uh, Rimova. They all can help you find those people because you are not the first person to call to see what you can do. You can always take them to Goodwill and Salvation Army, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee they're going to get to the people who actually need it the most. I hear you, and uh, let me know what happens. If anybody else is interested in that, we'll do some research on our end, and on a subsequent show, I will get you some more information for anybody listening who's got bags they just want to donate. And I guarantee you, I got lots of my listeners who, who are in that position and will find them a great and loving home. Okay? Stick around because when we come back, we're going for a new definition of luxury here in Beverly Hills with the CEO of Virtuoso, Matthew Upchurch. We'll be back with more of Ion Travel from the Peninsula in Beverly Hills right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back.
Now, back to Eye on Travel. And welcome back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg here with you as we continue from Beverly Hills, California. You can always reach me. Just email me at peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number. Question or problem, we will solve it right here on the air. It's a new year, so time to talk to one of our go-to guys. He's the CEO of Virtuoso and a regular on the show by now. He's asking for residuals, but he's not going to get them. Matthew Upchurch, welcome. Hey, Peter. Good to see you again, as always. And I can still say Happy New Year because it's still January. Yeah, it's early. So it's crystal ball time. We just saw a, a record year in terms of demand, revenue, occupancy, load factor, any way you look at it. And I don't know about you, but I was surprised that it could sustain the entire 12 months. We're now starting a new year. What are you seeing? Yeah, so far, I mean, our sales, advanced sales coming into 24, were still 20 some odd percent higher than 23. So that was amazing coming in. We saw a little bit of softness in November, early December, a little bit of the first month, but right now... Um, there's certain pockets out there that, that are having a little bit of softness, but overall it's still looking very strong. Of course, you know, the num- if you look at it, the number one corollary to certainly in the luxury sector has been the stock market. Um, and the stock market is all-time highs, right? Now we had a little bit of a bumpy start at the beginning of the year, but still if you look at it within the perspective of the last couple of years, it's, it's, it's way up there. But again, you come back to the fact that the fundamentals of why travel was hit its peak in 2019 are still there. Five generations of people all traveling at the same time in numbers we've never seen before because of the longevity revolution and because of the prioritization of experiences for younger people. Um, and then the rise of the rest of the world. Um, and by the way, that record in 23, we have, we have an office in Shanghai. That's with very few Chinese traveling. So remember in 2019... And there's still very few. Right. But remember in 2019... There are 100 million Chinese traveling around the world. So when those numbers come back, um, you know, it's going to be interesting how we do it. I think there'll be a leveling off uh, to some degree, but I remember thinking about this, that this kind of pent-up demand, revenge travel, whatever you want to call it. You know, nothing changes human behavior like having something taken away from you that you took for granted. Um, So I still think that overall um, we'll see pockets, uh, whether it's geopolitical, whether it's um, the economy, um, but... I think that every major disruption in the nearly 40 years that I've been doing this has actually made travel more valuable in people's lives. Um, and it, it, it's just been amazing to see that. And of course, the greatest disruption of all time, COVID. But travel becomes a safety valve. Yeah, and it's a, it's a safety valve, it's a connection point. I mean, look, the only reason humans survived as a species is because we're social animals, right? So. You know, it it makes sense to me why restaurants and, you know, live shows and travel and all this is doing so much because it's like it's our way of coping, you know. And then when you when you look at the fact that, you know, algorithms, um, I heard Tristan Harris, the co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology, he had a great podcast talking about the fact that, you know, the he used the term the monopolization of human attention, basically the big tech companies right, teaching algorithms how to get your attention because every nanosecond is worth billions of dollars. And unfortunately, algorithms are ruthless animals or ruthless uh, algorithms, um, and they have found out that it attacks the amygdala, the human part of the brain, the fear part of the brain, and algorithms have actually learned that division and fear capture more attention. So the reality is the world looks, you know, when you consume a lot of this. That is not a healthy point. It's not a healthy point. So having grown up in the travel industry and believing in the great parts of the industry about human connection and understanding and cultural exchange and all that, 
I've now added this as another layer of why this industry is so important because, you know, it's like it's it's a lot harder to hate somebody when you actually see them face to face. But then again, you just threw the algorithm wrench into the machinery, and that is if we begin to depend on the algorithm, we lose that ability. Well, you know, it's interesting. People have asked me every time there's an, you know, we're only about a year to the, you know, to the outcome of ChatGPT. Um, of course, AI is on everybody's tongue. What's interesting is AI is not new. The social media platforms and, all, uh, and search stuff has all been on, running on AI algorithm. I mean, artificial intelligence algorithms. What changed with ChatGPT is natural language interfaces, meaning it felt and looked and sounded like real people, right? Um, but what's interesting is one of the people that I follow on AI says that this is actually ushering in the age of distrust. Now, you would think, well, based on everything. I have a news bulletin for you. Right? That age is here. Well, and what's interesting is I actually think it's going to have an interesting boomerang effect, which is relationships of trust and knowing people and having real relationships is going to become even more essential. I mean, I don't know about you, but during Thanksgiving, Google played that ad with a new Pixel 6 or whatever it is, whatever, where you could take a picture and three people in the picture were, you know, not smiling or this, whatever, and you could literally hit a button and change their face. Can I hit a button right now? Of course. Stay with me for a second. We're going to take a quick break. And by the way, Matthew and I are actually real people, and we'll be back with more of Ion Travel from Beverly Hills, California, as Ion Travel returns right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. And we're back and we're still real. Peter Greenberg and Matthew Upchurch, the CEO of Virtuoso, talking about the impact of AI algorithms and the impact on travel. So let's go back to that idea. You know, if you have such control over your content that you can invent stuff that doesn't exist or manipulate stuff that people don't trust, where's the outcome? Well, that's, you know, I literally wanted to send an email to Google uh, when those, those Pixel phone ads because we always know we could Photoshop something, right? But 99% of the population doesn't know Photoshop well enough to do that. Now, at the touch of a button instantly, I could literally change an entire photograph I just took on my, on my, on my smartphone. So I, you realize that creates a whole new opportunity for people to have an alibi. Well, and now you have, I mean, music and I mean, everything is there. But again, I think, you know, travel has always been about connecting with people, understanding things and whatever. So I do think that this whole idea about relationships of trust are going to be even more important um, is, is a reality. And I hope, you know, and I, I am happy that travel has become you know, no longer a luxury, but really a, a, a core part of humanity's um, reason for living. Well, I've already said people don't want to travel. They need to travel. And we've, we've crossed that threshold, if you will. That was, a, I think, accelerated by COVID when people made very smart, smart decisions or maybe not so smart decisions, but decisions nonetheless to change their purchasing patterns, to change their behavior and say, you know what? I'm not going to buy a new car. I'm not going to buy new clothes. But I have to buy experiences. Well, because, you know, whether you want to take it to one extreme and call it mental health or the other is just, you know, meaningfulness, right? Um, that entire range is a real thing. 
Um, you know, I remember being interviewed years ago for a Thanksgiving article that was done on travel industry executives and says, you know, what what do you remember from the holidays? Like, right? And it was never, every now and then I could remember, you know, some gift that I, but the, what I do remember are all the experiences I had with my, with, with my, my parents, my, my siblings, my, now my kids. Um, those are the things that we talked around the table about. So, and I do think that, you know, being able to understand other cultures and do all that kind of stuff is, is a very important part of being a competitive global citizen. So as you analyze your numbers, which you say are up, what, 24%? Over already a record. Already. Uh, let's go dig deeper into those numbers. Are there asking? Are your clients asking for different destinations or a different way to do those destinations? Well, I would say that, the you know, it's interesting. For a lot of our travelers that, that are very avid travelers, very sophisticated travelers, even before COVID, um, they were already starting to migrate to quote unquote off season, right? So instead of going to Europe in August and July and June, they were already they were already ahead of the curve going in September, October, November. Um, so you're seeing some. We actually just did a survey on the effects of climate change on travel, and there actually is this kind of idea of like trying to find the places that are that are they're cooler that are not not as affected, whether it's seasonality or different places. Um, but I do think, look, we've always had this thing we call creative tension with our customers. The desire to go back to familiar places that they love, to see what's new, what's different, can I see it in a different way, et cetera, and the desire to go explore something completely new. So that, you know, that creative tension is always there. One of the things that really good advisors and people in the virtual social network have, have done is they've done a lot of good pairings. So for example, if you're a lover of Venice, you know that it's only a two and a half hour you know, high-speed train ride to go to Slovenia, which is a fabulous you know, up and coming destination. So the idea of pairing new and old combinations and things like that is really uh, a, a, a very hot topic in our network. Do you feel a ticking clock? Do you feel people figure that they're really under a ticking clock to get it done now because they may not be there tomorrow? There's no question in my mind there's an element of that. There, there definitely is an element of that. The question is, is that, is that a bubble or not, right? Or is that just this change of psychology? The other thing that we have to really give credit to, though, is the, what, what I call the, just the overall um, increase in quality of everything. You know, you used to buy a Hyundai 20 years ago, and you were lucky if it lasted five years. Today, Five today, months. Today, a Hyundai has the features and the reliability of what we used to think a Lincoln or a Cadillac or something like that is. So if you look at the overall reliability and quality of some, the, the good side of the, of, you know, of, the, of the economy has increased, you know, the, the longevity of things and whatever, that does allow for the expenditure on things like experiences, you know, that you're not having to get rid of your car every five years. So now you have this sort of double-edged sword between a sense of sentimentality and history and a sense of adventure with a ticking clock. Exactly. And exactly, and you know, and you have that normal desire. I mean, for me, for example, I love going back to places I've been to a lot of times with new people, with my kids, with friends, with someone, because every single time you, you go, you see it through different eyes. Um, we just spent New Year's Eve in San Miguel Allende in, in Mexico. That's old school for you. It's old school because I grew up in Mexico, you know, and all that. But my brother's there, and it's and, and it, but experiencing it with 
with our daughter and our two sons was was so so much fun. Matthew Upchurch, the president, CEO, and Poobah. Can I call you Poobah? Poobah's good. A virtuoso. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, by the way, that music means you're out of time for this hour. Stick around, everybody. We have a whole lot more coming as Ion Travel returns to Beverly Hills, California. Stick around. And uh, this is, again, not an algorithm. We'll be back with more right after this. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg back with you as Ion Travel continues for this third weekend in January 2024. I'm still getting used to those numbers, 2024, as I'm sure you are as well. Hope you're having a great weekend wherever you are. And if you're just joining us, let me tell you where we're broadcasting from. Get out those maps, boys and girls. 34 degrees, 4 minutes north. 118 degrees, 23 minutes west. We are in Beverly Hills at the iconic Peninsula Hotel here in Beverly Hills. And, of course, you can always reach me. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air, and we'll be doing that again throughout this hour as well. Most importantly, though, we're very happy to be in Beverly Hills, especially at this time of the year, because the weather's so nice. And there's such great history here as well, which we're going to talk about in just a little bit. But speaking of weather, it's not so nice in other parts of the country and in other parts of the world. And if you've noticed lately on any of your flights a little more turbulence, well, you're not imagining things. In fact, there are now ratings for the most turbulent air routes in the world. Now, the rankings analyzed more than about 150,000 long-haul flights. And what were the researchers looking for? The intensity of turbulence at any given spot along a posted route. Now, Here's one for you. The 1,100-mile route between Santiago, Chile, and Santa Cruz in Bolivia, that qualifies as the most turbulent air route in the world. You know what else is high on the list? Go to Europe. Milan to Geneva. But then let's come back to the U.S. We've got Nashville to Raleigh-Durham. That's a turbulent route. Charlotte to Pittsburgh. New York to Portland, Maine. And Denver to Puerto Vallarta. But wait, we're just getting started. I'm going to give you the 10 most turbulent air routes in America. I mentioned Nashville to Raleigh-Durham, right? And Charlotte to Pittsburgh. And Denver to Puerto Vallarta. Let's keep going. New York to Raleigh-Durham. Warwick to, to Syracuse. Atlanta to Dulles. Pittsburgh to Raleigh-Durham. Raleigh-Durham's getting a lot of these. New York to Portland, Maine. We mentioned that. Boston to Syracuse and Boston to Philadelphia. Crazy, right? I mean, think about that. Now, I want you to do what I do. And a lot of people listening to the show are going to think I'm crazy. I've been doing this all my adult life. When you get on the plane, what's the first thing they tell you to do? Fasten your seatbelt. And then what's the first thing that happens when you get up to cruising altitude? The seatbelt sign goes off. No, this is all counterintuitive. Seatbelts were designed 
when planes took off at about 80 miles an hour. Planes, and they landed at 80 miles an hour. Planes don't take off at 80 miles an hour anymore. They talk, take off at about 160 and land about the same speed as well. The problem is, in an aborted takeoff or a survivable hard landing, my experience has been, and by the way, I can document this, that in those hard t- aborted takeoffs or hard landings, if you're wearing a seatbelt, the impact and force of that belt around your waist could easily break your pelvis, making you unable to move or escape from the plane. Now, you're not going to die from the fire as fast as you'll die from the toxic smoke. But what about taking your seatbelt off at cruising altitude? That is stupid. It should be the other way around. So what do I do? I know I admit it. I don't wear my seatbelt during takeoff and landing. I make everybody think I am, but I don't. But I absolutely wear my seatbelt when we're in the air. Because the injuries, in some cases the deaths, caused by what we call CAT, that's clear air turbulence, cannot be overestimated. It's bad. Ask a flight attendant. They don't get a chance to wear their seatbelts during the flight, and they're the ones who are injured the most when they get turbulence. So be a contrarian that way. But remember, even if you want to fasten your seatbelt loosely uh, in the air, do it. I just don't fasten my seatbelt upon takeoff or landing, and, uh, and there you have it. So follow my advice. But we're not finished yet because we're dealing with more outbreaks of different kind of weather, right? There's one thing to talk about turbulence. There's another thing to talk about temperature. 2023 was officially the hottest year on record. And by the way, global warming affects turbulence, right? Different thermals up there. So how hot was it last year? The average temperature, it seems pretty mild, was nearly 59 degrees. That's an increase over the year before. And every month last year was warmer than predicted, with July and August being the hottest two months on record, get ready, in the last century. Now, what about this year? Scientists are predicting an additional increase in the thermometer. But there's another alarming report, and we got to be aware of this. At the same time we were seeing temperatures rise, the Antarctic sea ice levels reached record lows last year. We've seen it happen. I was down in Antarctica in 2018. I went back again last year. The difference was noticeable. It was dramatic. We've seen it in the Arctic as well. And now we're dealing with loss of habitat where polar bears probably have nowhere to hang out because those ice flows are decreasing. Now, along with a corresponding rise in water levels in other parts of the world, right? So you have sea ice levels reaching new lows, but water levels reaching new highs in other parts of the world, which means what? Flooding, damage, and more problems. Scientists are predicting more incidents now of wildfires this year. Drought, or just as I said, flooding. Now, I don't want to alarm you too much. It may not be the end of the world just yet, but it will affect some of your travel planning to certain destinations. Canada, look at the wildfires they had last year. Australia, 
Look at the wildfires they have every year. And let's not forget a little bit north of us here in Beverly Hills, California. And the wildfires followed by what? Drought followed by flooding. It's not a pretty picture. So next time you're planning a trip, take a look at the weather. Not just the temperature, but the other aspects. I just gave you turbulence. But also the history and the incidence of major weather activity. Right? Not just tornadoes in the Midwest or earthquakes that you can't predict out in California. No, I'm talking about the actual rising water level and global warming. That's going to determine in many cases, maybe not where you go this year, but it's going to have a big effect in, in following years. And not a, not a good way to end 2023 and certainly not a great idea to start 2024. But the good news is, at least for the moment, we're having a pretty good time in Beverly Hills. And when we come back, we're going to talk history of this small little village that has so much clout with Phil Savinick. That's right. He's the big guy at the Beverly Hills Historical Society, born and raised here with a lot of stories to tell. So stick around. We'll be back with more from the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills as Ion Travel returns, no flooding, right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg back with you as Ion Travel continues from Beverly Hills and the Peninsula Hotel. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We'll solve it right here on the air. And as I do every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our imaginatively named website. You guessed it, petergreenberg.com for our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that hard and essential work all around the world, whether it's in the Middle East, Asia, Turkey, You name it, there are people out there who need your help, and this is the way you can help. But we also like to localize that experience and those opportunities, and we can do that right here in Beverly Hills. In fact, about 20 minutes outside of where we are right now, there's Project Angel Food. They prepare, cook, deliver meals to people suffering from serious illnesses. And in fact, the whole idea is that ill people should never go hungry. They began in response back to the in the early 80s with HIV and AIDS. And of course, in 2004, 20 years ago, they expanded their services. They've delivered over 600,000 meals every year to help terminally ill people of any age. And their organization has made up 80% of volunteers. And that can include you anytime you happen to be in Beverly Hills. If you want more information, it's easy. It's angelfood.org slash volunteer or go right to our website, petergreenberg.com, for the comprehensive list on a global level. My next guest, always happy to have him back whenever whenever we're in Beverly Hills, because he is Mr. Beverly Hills. He's the unofficial chief storytelling officer of this city, and in fact, his family moved to Beverly Hills when he was five. He's only about six years old now, but we'll keep that a secret. Welcome, Phil Savinick. How are you? Thanks so much for having me back. And you're actually officially the president of the Beverly Hills Historical Society. By default, I've lived longer here than anybody else, so I have the best stories. Well, I'll be the judge of that, but thanks for joining us. No, but seriously, Beverly Hills is a very small place, if you take a look at it geographically. It only has uh, 30,000 people, basically. 
uh, I may get it wrong, but it's about seven square miles. It's a little island in the middle of this metropolis called Los Angeles. And it really was established to be the oasis in the middle of the desert that was Southern California. And this goes back a hundred years, right? 2024 is the 100th anniversary of Beverly Hills' independence. That was a funny story because uh, when Beverly Hills was about 10 years old, the, uh, the, you know, the, the owners, the, you know, the people who were supplying the utilities and the real estate people said, let's sell it to LA. It's too hard to get water. It's too hard to you know, give everybody telephone poles. And the residents stood up and they said, no, this is too important. We have this precious little gem. We have our private police and our private fire and our private schools. Let's go door to door and campaign for this initiative. And people did. And people did. But these people were the most famous people on earth. It was Mary Pickford who put it together. And she asked Doug Fairbanks, her husband, to go with them. And Will Rogers was one of them. Even Rudolph Valentino would go door to door, knock on somebody's door and say, it's very important for you to vote. And the, the woman would faint. He'd sign a picture. He'd have a little <laughs> tea, maybe something stronger. It was uh, the, uh, prohibition. And sure enough, he would win the vote. So it's the 100th anniversary of Beverly Hills' independence from just being another little neighborhood in Los Angeles. And it still has its own police department. All of still the stuff. Ha- all the private stuff. So they, they, it was the movie stars that really saved the city. And I know on our website, uh, the Beverly Hills Historical Society.org, we have a 20-minute film of who these movie stars were, why they were so famous, why they were so great, and what they did to save the city. And the city stays. And the city stays. But, you know, there are so many hidden gems in Beverly Hills that people don't see. Now, of course, there's Rodeo Drive. Everybody has to come to Rodeo Drive, right? One of the most expensive retail streets in the world, right? Fair enough? I mean, every brand name of luxury is is represented there. It's a showroom for all the multinational fashion houses. Right. But it's all there. It, it used to have a toy store and a writing shop and an outdoor restaurant and a hardware store. So really, even in my lifetime, we've seen it become this whole different kind of an animal. But I'm, I'm taking you on a little trip soon to show you the hidden gems of Rodeo that nobody stops at. Well, actually, I found a couple. I'm going to share them with you. You ready? Okay. If you're on Rodeo Drive, you look for a little red awning. And then you go down this alley, and you'll find an elevator, and you push P3, and you, underst- and you open the door, and the elevator door opens up, and you're in the most incredible garage you've ever seen. It's where all the stars in Beverly Hills store the most expensive cars in the world. It's called the vault. It's amazing. And I have to tell you, I got a chance to drive one. Yeah. 1957 Mercedes convertible version of the Gullwing. And, you know, in L.A., you know, you are what you drive. So for one brief period of time, I was one important dude. I mean, <laughs> I, I was driving up and down Rodeo Drive, and everybody was taking pictures of me. No, they were taking pictures of the car with some jerk in it named Greenberg. But the point is, that's a, that's a secret. And the other secret that I discovered, and I've been coming to Los Angeles since 1971, and I thought I knew it. I didn't. 
the Robinson Gardens. Oh, my goodness. Over six acres. Let's talk about an oasis in the middle of Beverly Hills, which is just this amazing. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a refuge. It's unbelievable. And nobody knows it because they're over on, on Rodeo Drive trying to get an estimate for a Diet Coke. It was left to the county by Mrs. Robinson with all of her things in place. So you don't go to an empty museum. It's an as-lived-in museum. And by the way, she lived to be just shy of 100. And she threw four parties a week until she was 99 and was planning her 100th birthday party. Seriously? Seriously. She and Mary Pickford would would dine a lot because Mary was the only other house on the hill up there. And depending on whose house they were, Mary would say, oh, Virginia, you're the first lady of Beverly Hills. And Virginia would say, oh, no, Mary, you're the first lady of Beverly Hills. And that was their joke. Yeah. And the thing is, when she died, as you said, she left everything, every possession to the county. And there it is. And this beautiful estate has the, uh, the only self-sustaining palm garden in North America. Yeah. Uh, and ponds and waterfalls and the great gardens. How about and this? And the pool house. The palm trees that they have there, it's a forest. The largest palm forest in North America. Actually, the only one that's self-sustaining. Yeah, it's you know, amazing. The seeds drop, it grows up, oh, they got another palm tree. Unbelievable. That's another hidden gem. Yep. Then the other one I discovered, I discovered, Edelweiss chocolates. Well, those of us here don't think that's so secret because they have the best candy in the world. As no, it's ma- what's in the back room. Well, uh, they used to have parking in the back. Yeah. So the good customers could run in through the back door and get their, their chocolates. Well, one day, one of our local residents named Lucille Ball ran in through the back door and they were making the chocolate on a conveyor belt. Does anybody remember that episode? Oh my God. So anyway, so one of the most, well, one of the most famous episodes of I Love Lucy was inspired by the back room at Edelweiss Chocolate. Well, what I found out is that she claimed to have spent three weeks there researching the role. You and I both know she was scamming for free chocolate. Come on. Absolutely. But that conveyor belt scene was unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I must have seen it 20 times because you can't stop laughing. Well, that's one of the things about the people who lived in Beverly Hills. It wasn't that they were famous. They were great. They did things that last half a century and people are still laughing. So it was a different caliber of celebrity than we have today. These were great. The Gershwins lived on Roxbury. Lucy lived there. Jimmy Stewart, Jack Benny. um, George Burns. Burns was a couple of blocks over on Maple, but uh, uh, Agnes Moorhead was there. Scarlett O'Hara's dad was there. uh, Hedy Lamarr was down the street. Ginger Rogers was down the street. Jerome Kern was around the corner. It was an enclave of the most creative, the most brilliant, and and they were just our neighbors. And you grew up. Well, I got to tell you, Halloween on Roxbury Drive was quite a treat. Because... Well, we always assumed that, uh, you know, superstars would give you better candy. And sometimes did they, wait a minute, that, did they? Sometimes it worked out that way, sometimes not. <laughs> I remember one year I went to Jimmy Stewart's house and they had hard candies. We hated hard candies. Then next door, we went to Lucy's house. Now, some years they would invite you in for a party. And this particular year, there was a bowl that said, 
don't you dare knock on the door. And, but Jack Benny was the payoff. He gave me a silver dollar. You still have it? I still have it. So the cheapest man in the world wasn't actually what he purported to be. Phil Savonick, thank you so much for joining us. As always, I'm looking forward to our bicycle ride. Okay. And when we come back, we're talking to Deborah Frank on her definition of luxury. Back with more from Beverly Hills right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air. more information on what you've heard have a travel question or comment just log on to petergreenberg.com now here's peter peter greenberg back with you as ion travel continues and of course you know the drill you can always reach out to me just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name phone number question or problem we'll solve it right here on the air people in the travel industry have participated in what i can safely say is just an obsessive pursuit of trying to define the word luxury when it comes to travel and my next guest knows all about that because she's the editor-in-chief of Luxury Magazine. So she better have an answer. Uh, Deborah Frank. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you, Peter. So let's get down to terms here. I mean, everything's changing in the world. Parameters are changing. Demographics are changing. Lifestyles are changing. What's the definition of luxury changing? Luxury these days. I don't even think that word is part of the vernacular anymore because it's more about so many other definitions adjectives that you would describe what it was in the past or what it is in the future now um active luxury um wellness uh there's so many other well there's passive luxury that's me watching other people spend money (laughs) no but seriously i mean is there one definition I, you know, it is a conundrum. I've been actually trying to think of for years how to redefine it because it's been abused, I think, the word. You know, you see, you could go through the city and go to parts where it says luxury rentals and it's obviously not a luxury rental. The building's falling apart. So um, I think it depends on, as Barbara Muckerman recently said, uh, it depends on the context and and the situation where you are and how you define it personally. Well, you know, I look at luxury in another way, and I think you might agree with this, luxury as it applies to other words. So for me, the luxury of space, the luxury of time, the luxury of health, uh, the luxury of intelligence, Right. Exactly. And, and we have a shortage of a lot of that these days. Definitely. And that's what people are looking for more than ever, I think. Um, in my travels, what I've been seeing, what our readers tell us, what the MasterCard card member tells us, um, the magazine is written for luxury MasterCard. Um, and those people are looking for active adventure, um, wellness, uh and experiences and things that are a new definition of luxury. There's one thing you left out of that sentence, which I think is telling. Are they looking for stuff? No, exactly. I I don't think, I mean, there is, there's always going to be the material things that people want, but I don't think it's about um, the most expensive car. Okay, let me ask a stupid question, okay? I open up many luxury magazines that are still around, right? And the pages, the ad pages are full of ads 
for watches. I only own two wrists. <laughs> right. How many watches can you possibly own? Well, that comes to the collectibles. Those are the people. That's a whole other level, I think, yeah. of, of um, that's another consumer uh, who's looking for that particular car, that particular watch, that particular piece of jewelry, wine collectors. Um, and it's, it's a very different genre, I think, category. See, maybe I'm just like old school, but I'm the kind of guy, if you're going to buy the watch, you wear the watch. If you're going to buy the wine, you drink the wine. Yes. I don't collect wine. No, it's true. I actually, I have a friend who has this super expensive Rolex diving watch. Which, by the way, let me get, he or she? He. And, and he's very happy to show you that watch. Yes, but he, he actually dives with it, and people have commented. Does he, have, does he dive for luxury fish? No. <laughs> does he dive on luxury wrecks? <laughs> no, but it's actually a functional watch. That's the problem people Well, he's the exception forget. to the rule. Exactly. How many people go out there and buy all these Land Rovers, and they never and go off-roading? Four-wheeling, right, never. exactly, exactly. Yes, and actually, one of, when um, Lamborghini came out with the Urus Sport Ute, I test drove it in the desert um, in Arizona, and it it really does a remarkable job on the you know in the sand. It'll get you out of that that hole. But um, but people let know. me ask you a question, Deborah. In a given week, how often are you driving in the sand? No, <laughs> never. Actually, thank you. So it's you know I, I guess that comes down to another definition of luxury, which by the way I support. The luxury is when you have options, yes. right? So the true definition of luxury is when you have options. It doesn't mean that you're going to use them, but people love the idea that they can. Right. And that's why so many people are upset about their airplane experience, because about all their options that they no longer can even think about. That's true. And I, that's why I think private jet, in, for a certain demographic, private jets and charters have exploded. It's you know, That reminds me of, of a famous story, which, by the way, turns out to be true, that one day Steven Spielberg is flying commercial with his family and his kids. As they walk on the plane, his youngest kids say, Dad, what are all these people doing on our plane? Because they had never been commercial. Just a right. thought, you know. Absolutely. And, 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 of course, you have to put things in proper context and proper perspective or you lose sight of the whole idea in, in the beginning. Yes. and that, But that's taking off that whole private travel sector and jet travel. Well, that came out travel. of COVID as well. Yes, Right? Yep. People just didn't want to be surrounded by a lot of people. Exactly. Yeah, I even had a story in the works, um, the the most isolated places in the world, the best isolated places in the world. But then people wanted to start being with their families and being with others. And so... Oh, I want to read that story about the best isolated <laughs> place in the world where you can show off your Rolex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we never ran it because then it, the whole, everything changed. People wanted to be amongst others. The whole idea being that it's changing rapidly. We're yes. talking to Deborah Frank, the editor-in-chief of Luxury Magazine. When we come back, I want to talk about the manifestations of luxury that go beyond a watch or a car. We'll be back with more to talk about that with Deborah Frank, Peter Greenberg here as Ion Travel continues right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Ion Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. 
Peter Greenberg here, back with you as Ion Travel continues from a luxury capital of the world, Beverly Hills, talking with Deborah Frank. Uh, here's the word again, the editor-in-chief of Luxury Magazine. <laughs> so Beverly Hills would like to define itself as one of the capitals of luxury, correct? Yes. I actually did a story about Beverly Hills called Wealth, W-E-L-L-T-H, 90210. And it was about that within a small radius, you have the most concentrated amount of high-end spas between the Waldorf Astoria, the Peninsula Beverly Hills, the Four Seasons Beverly Hills. They have all these super high-end spas. Right. So you got an estimate there for cream. Yeah, right. Just a thought. <laughs> but I mean, wellness is part of luxury now. Absolutely. It's, I think, when it comes to fitness and health and healthy aging, it's what everybody's looking for. Because that demographic, the boomers, you know, that's what they're looking for. And then Gen X. But I'm, I'm thinking that maybe wellness is taking a higher role in the definition of luxury that, rather than a conspicuous display of wealth. I think so. When it comes to, I mean, that's all part of active luxury, I think. That's where it, it all seems to expand with people's Define active luxury. People looking for a good place where they can, for example, I recently had in the current issue a story about skiing, but it was, you know, the mountain gets too crowded in some of these resorts. And so and on the outskirts. And we can't have that. <laughs> you want your own private mountain, but you can't. So if you can't, there's... Uh, other activities and you want to stay active so there's you know cross country and snowshoeing and all these other activities that are on the other side of the mountain but and all these little boutique hotels that have opened up that aren't part of the main resort see i just go right directly to après ski why 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 would i even (laughs) consider going to the mountain where i can just be at the bar well and i don't even drink (laughs) that's true but bottom line as it's changing so much I think there might be a deeper psychographic at work here, and that is, which COVID had a lot to do with, I think, where people came up close and personal with their own mortality. Uh, Either they got COVID and survived, or worse, their friends and loved ones got COVID and didn't. And that changed their, their purchasing patterns and their definition of luxury. Yes, and it's also, I think, it comes down to just... Um, mental exhaustion in terms of work and people needing to spend more time on themselves and paying attention to them to their own health and their own time like you said wanting time and time to just relax and enjoy life and slow down it's all part of that also the slow travel trend and because one of the things i think we're seeing at the at the end of 2023 now that we're in 2024 is that retail sales for luxury goods uh, in 2023, was not as high as everybody expected. People made other choices. They wanted to buy experiences. That was their definition of luxury. Exactly, exactly, experiences. Um, and not just the typical, more cultural and thinking and exposing themselves to um, the local environment, people learning things, um, what's authentic at a destination rather than, you know, I think, you know, one of the, worst places I, I went was um, to go and uh, where there's just tons of stores with jewelry and diamonds and you know one one after the other in the Caribbean and it's kind of it's too much well you know that's the, the sort of the gauntlet of duty free that you see when, when a lot of cruise ships go into some of those ports right. it's like what am I doing here right and so now the trend is more toward, for a certain connoisseur, it's to go on those out-of-the-way places, off the beaten path, um, and to travel to destinations that not everyone goes to and where you won't find the typical franchise. 
you know, and and you get to see the more local uh, shops and people who are there just living their life and enjoying so, it. So perhaps you've launched an idea of a franchise-free luxury zone. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I think that's great. Yes. Right. That's the that's the new promotion. That's what. Yeah. See, part of a luxury for me is uh, there's a farmer's market in Madison, Wisconsin. It's the best farmer's market in America, but one of the reasons that it is is they have a rule there that the only people who can exhibit at the farmer's market are the people who actually grew the fruit, raised the animals, made the cheese. So you're actually talking to the person who actually made it and not some franchise or sales rep. Absolutely. That's fantastic. I love it. That's luxury. Yes. I was just in Beckway, um, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and the best off-the-path, beaten-path tour was this little salt plantation that um, a former photographer, he he did photography for Food and Wine magazine and others and worked with chefs, and he started this plantation um, to create sea salt. And in different flavors, and it was, and he has all these people on the island working for him, and it's just that kind of authenticity and experience that you wouldn't even think it that it existed. And was he wearing a Rolex? <laughs> no, no. Just double checking. <laughs> Deborah Frank, the editor in chief of Luxury Magazine, and we'll be back with more of Ion Travel from Beverly Hills, a small little enclave of luxury, as Ion Travel returns right after this. Thanks so much, David. Thank you. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Peter Greenberg back with you as Ion Travel continues from the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills, California. Of course, you know the drill. You can always reach out to me. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Let's go to the phones out in Hampshire, Illinois. I've got Kathy on the phone. Hey, Kathy. Hello, Mr. Greenberg. Thank you so much for being available to assist our family. I truly appreciate everyone that you have assisted over the years. Well, okay. So, um, how, so how can I assist you? Um, unfortunately, on January 1st, while celebrating New Year's Eve on a cruise ship, my daughter stepped on the stem of a broken champagne glass. Ouch. This is while she, yeah, <laughs> this is while she was dancing on one of the main dance floors. The broken stem glass pierced her shoe and embedded itself in her foot. Um, the infirmary did treat her with two stitches, but unfortunately, it's my understanding that it took approximately 20 minutes and at least three attempts at reaching crew before she received the medical attention that she needed. This occurred within just hours of us boarding the ship. She was not able to walk for the majority of our seven-day cruise and did not leave the ship. Thankfully, there was a party of six of us that was able to work together to take turns helping her get food, you know, get a shower, move around the ship. Um, we all absolutely love cruising and would love to give, give the cruise line an opportunity to rectify this situation. How do you, in your experience, how do you recommend that we move forward regarding the cruise line? Okay, let's start with the basics. The name of the, the, name of the cruise line? It was Norwegian. And the name of the ship? Breakaway. There's a pun. Okay, so now <laughs> let me ask you this. Did you do your homework as reporters, if you will, to get a good, you know, minute-by-minute fact record of who you spoke to, their titles, their names, the time that it happened, things like that? Yes, yeah, absolutely. You have all that. Okay, 
And have you filed a claim with the ship? Yes, we have. Now, what kind of claim form was it? Was it a letter of complaint or was it a form? It was a, it was, I went to the specific email that the assistant general manager gave me uh, while we were still on board the ship. Um, It was a claim submission form. Okay. And you have the name of the assistant general manager? I do. Yes. Okay. And how long ago did you file that claim? I filed it about 72 hours ago. Okay. So, okay. So it's an email that you sent and you haven't heard back yet. Is that correct? Um, actually, we did hear back just yesterday and ah. they said that they, w- they would be getting back to us within 10 weeks. Within 10 weeks? Yes. Wait a minute. That makes no sense at all. Okay. So here's what I want you to do. Nobody should get back to you in 10 weeks. 10 days? Reasonable. 10 weeks? Life's too short. So, in, in, you know, in, in per, you know, to their benefit, maybe they will get back to us in 10 days, but they said within, they gave us the time frame of within 10 weeks. So, I, I don't that's know. That's still, that's, that's still unacceptable. So, mm-hmm. here's what I want you to do uh, email me again, peter at petergreenberg.com, but give me the, a copy of the, of the letter that you sent to them, a copy now, not the original. Uh, send me all the dates and times and facts and figures and names and titles. And then I will reach out to them to see if they can get back to me in less than 10 weeks. How about that? Thank you very much, Mr. Now, remember, Greenberg. But, but remember one thing. No promises here because every, every story has two sides to it. But mm-hmm. in a situation like this, you were, on the sh- you were on the cruise for seven days, right? Was anybody yes. else that you know of injured by glass during that time? No, but I don't know that there's any way we would have found out about it. Well, passengers tend to speak, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> did you see other instances around the ship when they were partying where they had glass, not plastic, in the area? Um, I guess the, the two things that stand out to me are um, a secure, security officer asked my other daughter to show, um, she asked, the security officer asked my daughter to show him where the accident occurred. So we went back to the stance floor about two hours after the original accident or injury occurred. We showed the security officer as close as my daughter could as to where the accident occurred. Um, At that point, I simply bent down and was able to pick up broken glass. Um, Thankfully, there was nobody else besides the three of us there. Um, But the dance floor was littered with lots of broken plastic and those pieces of broken glass that I was able to easily find. And now we're going to get down to it. Did you take a photo? Yes, of course. Good for you. Okay. I I wish more people would do what you're doing. So you took a photograph of the broken glass on the floor. Uh, Obviously, uh, I'm, I'm assuming you took a photograph of her injuries. We took a photograph of her foot um, and her shoe that was pierced. Did we take a, um, a picture of, you know, kind of the, um, the stitches in her foot? No. Yeah. No, that's Looking okay. Back, uh, yeah. Not to worry about that. Now, what you need to do now, as I said before, email me, peter at petergreenberg.com, with all of that information, with as much factual information as you can include, dates, times, names, titles, photos, And then let me reach out to them and see if they'll get back to me, as I said before, within 10 weeks. Okay? Thank you very, very much. I I did want to mention that while we continue to be on the ship, um, the general manager and the assistant general manager were very um, 
you know, very accommodating, you know, very That's accommodating. Good. They were absolutely very absolute professionals. The security officers, I've never been in a position to deal with security officers on a cruise ship before. They were the consummate professionals. Absolutely fantastic. You know what? Put that in a letter as well. Kathy, thanks again for the call. That music means we're out of time for the entire show. Lots of people to thank. Amanda Morris, our producer. Jeff Ryder doing the boards back in Connecticut. Mike Worrell, who's doing the boards right here in Beverly Hills. Robert B. Bolt and the entire staff of the Peninsula Hotel right here in Beverly Hills. We'll see you next week, everybody, from another location somewhere around the world. Bye-bye, everybody. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production.